The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to turn to Matthew chapter 24 with me today. I'm reading Breaking into the Midst of what is called the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, a closing sermon that he gave in answer to questions about the signs of the end of the times of when they expected Israel would reach its culmination and close out the age. They asked, the disciples asked those questions of Jesus in verse 3 of this chapter, and he begins a response that doesn't satisfy everyone because it doesn't say 1, 2, 3, 4 through point 15 in this chronological order, this is what will happen. Instead, he gives a number of signs of things that he called the birth pangs of the end of time and his kingdom, and they're all mingled together, things that would happen soon in the downfall of Jerusalem and the temple and things that haven't happened yet. And so he left kind of an enigmatic answer. There are definitely answers here, but they're not answers that solve all the mysteries. And after he suggests that there will be great trouble and trials for believers on earth, I'm breaking in the middle of the thoughts and words of Jesus at verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather in the elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lessons. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you will know that he is near and at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two women will be, or two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and the other left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, 
that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Son of God. We've been looking in a dozen past weeks at various large events that proclaim to us something about the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's no more valuable series of anything that I could leave with you, I felt, than portraits of Christ in various postures. And because we've looked at things like the virgin birth of Christ, his cross, his abandonment on the cross by his Father, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, we have to include this great scene of his promised second coming. If we left this out, it would be a sore omission. It would be as if we described the journey of someone, let's say, running a great marathon like the Boston Marathon, and uh, they registered, they prepared for the race, they entered the race, they competed, but somehow they didn't show up at the finish line. That would be a little hard to imagine why anyone would do that. It would be hard for us to imagine the entire span of the work of Christ without putting before you this very dramatic and yet hard to believe, quite frankly, picture of him coming in glory to end this age as we know it on earth today. The second coming of Christ will certainly be very different than his first coming. His first coming was in lowliness, in a stable, not announced much in advance except to a few shepherds and a sign given to some faraway people, Gentiles, to come from a distant land. And only a few gathered around and really were noticing him come there amid the straw and the donkeys and everything there in that stable of Bethlehem. But when he comes again, it's going to be just as opposite to that as can possibly be imagined. It is described as a history-making, history-breaking event that ends the age of earth as we know it today, that people will literally run from it in fear if they are not Christ's own people, or they will run toward it in exaltation and joy and a realization of ecstatic bliss, that this is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven that will last forever and ever. And we will receive our new resurrection bodies and be exempted from that judgment of condemnation and greeted by this coming king in a way that assures us that we are welcome forever. Matthew 24 is a chapter where Jesus predicts some events that happened close within his time. Some of these things took place and could be identified with current events, especially leading up to AD 70 when Rome flattened the city of Jerusalem and the temple and Never since has that temple ever been rebuilt or the rituals of it taken up again. But it mixes in, and this is where people get frustrated, it mixes in other events that have not yet come. And Jesus, I think, was on one hand revealing, but on the other hand concealing, because there are things there, and we don't always know which is which, that are things that have not yet come about and will yet happen before his historic Return. Some have likened it to looking at a range of mountains, maybe the Rocky Mountains you're 
driving across Colorado. I have not uh, approached the Rocky Mountains in that way. I've flown over them, but if I understand that you're driving in Colorado and in the east, it's farmland, relatively flat, rolling farmland, but soon you begin to see the Rocky Mountains, and you've got some distinct peaks that you can identify as you get close, but then you look and you see, well, beyond them there are some slightly less distinct things that are more miles away, and then in the far distance there's that gray and, and uh, purple smudges that are the far distant peaks of western Colorado. And that's what Jesus has here. He has near and far events, and he doesn't always say, this is a near event and this is a far event. He mingles them, not to confuse us, not to uh, trick us or deceive us, but he is not interested in giving us a timeline and saying, I want you to just check these off, check, 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 check. Oh, we're now at the second last event, so we know that he's coming. There's a certain air of mystery in what he gave us in this uh, Olivet Discourse. And we have to admit, Christians all have to admit, you know, we know, of course, we're supposed to believe in this. We know that we say uh, Christ is coming in the Apostles' Creed. But I think any realistic Christian, if you sit down, look them in the eye and say, what do you think about the second coming of Christ? Be absolutely honest. Tell me what you think. Well, people would say, oh, I don't know. I just can't quite believe that that's going to happen, that everybody's going to be able to look up in Sydney, Australia, and uh, in Peru, and in Alaska and London, and everyone's going to see Christ in the sky. This doesn't sound possible. Well, I would say to you, the virgin birth doesn't sound possible either. The resurrection of Jesus from his tomb didn't sound possible either. But they happened by the power of God. And I think that we're, we hear Christ emphasize here that you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power. It's the power of God that is going to bring this thing about. And indeed, it exceeds anything that we can possibly imagine. It's, it's just beyond our conceptualization that this should happen. And yet we as Christians hear our Lord tell us it will happen. I'd love to have time to tick off the many particulars that are in this text, and I'm not going to do it, but I wanted you to just hear a part of it. There are things in here that cause us questions. Let me just mention a few of the questions that are raised. For example, in verse 29, when it says immediately after the distress of those days, that sounds like a particularization that you could put on the calendar. What days? What distress? Well, those questions are not simple to answer because, again, there are things mingled together here that certainly go with and, and seem to predict uh, what took place in 70 AD, which was a disastrous time. Uh, verse 15, I didn't read that far back, but the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, what's that? Well, it has a particular uh, things tied to it that we believe that uh, the Romans did in the temple to desecrate the temple. We could develop that thesis. But I'm not here to go over all those details today. We think that these days of tribulation extend across all the troubles of Christians and persecution of Christians for the whole time that the kingdom of God is developing on this world and the gospel is going forward. It's not just some compact, nice little, oh, it's this A.D. to this A.D. and you can know exactly when it is. I think it has a very broad meaning. 
that the church is suffering and hurting and being persecuted and put down. And after those tribulations are brought to God's deadline of completion, Christ is going to come. He describes even the heavenly bodies falling from the sky. Is that something we should literally expect? I can't tell you for sure. I would say it's more, more like Jesus using a, a poetic, uh, non-literal description of things so disruptive happening that it seems like the sky itself is collapsing. I think it's figurative terminology here, not a, just a specific thing. Uh, the, the whole question, I tell you, I, when I would read this as a teenager, <clears throat> it used to bother me to try to answer the question uh, found in verse 34 when Jesus said, truly, this generation will not pass away till these things take place. The simplest way to look at that made me think always that, well, Jesus, you're wrong. Because I thought it meant this generation, the 11 disciples who were hearing this and the Christians of the first century who were alive right then, that they would have to be alive to see all this. If that is what he was promising, it, doesn't, it hasn't happened that way, has it? He's saying things will take place that have gone on and are not yet accomplished. And the disciples who were there are long gone, folks. But it seems to me that those are right who say they interpret that we're talking about the generation of faith, the church age, this generation of those who believe in Christ as Lord and Savior and who look for his coming. The generation of faith will be in the land until these things happen. Well, we could spend a lot of time working on all these details and probably still wouldn't uh, satisfy all the questions that are raised by this rather mysterious text. But I would like to just step back from it. I'm really more interested in giving you a big picture, a strategic billboard, if it were, in this dozen or so uh, messages I've been bringing you here in the last weeks. And I'll wind it up next week with one for the 13th of them. But we should look here, secondly, at Jesus' own description of the final appearing. Matthew 24, 30 and 31, he says in dramatic terms, The Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all nations will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory, sending his angels with a loud trumpet call to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. That has been God's covenant purpose through all history. Starting with Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you a people, Abraham, not just Israelites, but a people defined by faith who will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And here now that is being culminated and the Son of Man is going to bring together all the people of Christ, the elect people of God as they are known throughout all ages and gather them in the time of fulfillment and judgment when they will be exempted from the judgment of wrath but others who know him not, the non-elect, will be subjected to that judgment of wrath. Many scriptures would back this up if we had time to pursue them all. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, Daniel had a vision. He said, in my vision I looked and before me was one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. 2 Thessalonians 1 has Paul mentioning, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his powerful angels. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 has Paul again saying, the Lord himself 
will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. We could bring a whole army of Scripture passages to to come that have predicted this thing. And you know, I think no matter how many verses I quoted or how much Scripture I sort of packed together, you would think, because it's the way I think too, I'm just as weak as anybody, that you'd think it's still unreal. Pastor, it just, I know I've heard about this my whole Christian life, but it's so unreal, it just doesn't seem like it's possibly going to happen, that it could be a real thing. Well, I have to admit, you know, it's, you walk out on a good day of the week and the sun is shining and you have errands or work to do and you think, well, nothing's going to, catastrophic is going to break into this day. I'm, here I am driving down Lidditz Pike, passing by the sheets and thinking about my errands and I don't expect to see Jesus in the sky in front of me. And yet the scripture says, be watching, be thinking about this. Because it's going to happen in a time that you don't know. And I say back in my mind, but it's too unreal. Carol and I had an interesting experience that some of you may take me up on an offer to go see something in the theater. There's a very interesting movie that I think is only going to be out for a short time. Uh, it's called, they, I think it's They Shall Not Grow Old. Some of you have heard of this. It's a reproduction, reworking of film from World War I by Peter Jackson who took this old film. You know, if you watch movies or film from the 1920s, what do you see? Black and white, people going, you know, nothing's realistic. It's all too fast. Well, imagine an expert filmmaker slowing it down to the proper speed, colorizing it, putting the words in that that lip readers have discerned what they were saying in silent film and people of the right dialect and country that those people came from speaking what... It is absolutely amazing. You are watching people, British soldiers in World War I, come to life before you're just as real as you look to me and I look to you right now. And you just watch it astonished and think, all these people are dead. Not one of them is alive. And I'm watching their everyday life getting shot by the Germans and so on. Just amazing. Well, that, that to me is a likeness to the second coming. If I think of it at all, I think of it in some realm of unreality. And I say that I just can't quite get my mind around it, that it's really going to happen. Let me tell you, when it happens, when we are enveloped in that reality, when we are gazing on the glory of our risen and ascended Lord, everything is actually going to be just reversed. We're going to say, I can't believe that I spent 70 years of my life living in that black and white world where everybody moved in a weird way and and nothing was right with God. This is the reality. Jesus Christ He is going to be all in all, the Scripture says. He's going to captivate us. We're going to look upon Him and say, did did that shades of gray world that I remember of my job and and all the things that I did in the earthly world, was that real? I don't think that was even real compared to the glory of seeing my Savior and my King and bowing before Him. Every eye will see Him, the text says. You say, I don't understand how. You don't have to understand how. Your eyes are going to understand how. 
when we see him. And it will be glorious. Saw a shot on the news, I guess it was last night. Uh, Apparently the Windsors have finally made up their mind that Prince Philip shouldn't drive anymore. Glad to hear that. And uh, it showed a shot of the Windsor family, Queen and Philip and all the sons and daughters and, you know, grandchildren and everybody gathered. I don't know what the occasion was, but they were all gathered. The Queen had her, her regal robes on. And there they were, the monarchy of England in splendor. And I thought, I, I guess that's about as glory. If you want to use the word glorious, that's about as glorious as human beings can deck themselves out to be glorious compared to Jesus Christ. That's pitiful, not glorious. Jesus Christ, our magnificent conqueror, judge, redeemer, son of God, son of man in his splendor, which we will only be able to look upon because God allows our eyes forgiveness for looking upon things that are so great and so wonderful. Well, what will be the consequences? What can we say would be the consequences of Christ's coming? Some of it is in here in other places to follow where it tells about the judgment that will happen there when he comes. That's the biggest event. And that's why some are going to greet that event running in the opposite direction as fast as they can go. Scripture says they will cry out to the rocks, fall on us, conceal us, We cannot stand the scrutiny of him who comes. They will know instinctively that he has come for judgment. I guarantee you not many of you have been reading Zechariah in your devotions recently, but if you check out Zechariah 12.10, it says there that all the nations of earth will mourn when they see him. They will look upon the one they have pierced and they will mourn for him because of what he represents to them, terrifying prospect of judgment and no opportunity to repent and turn their lives around. But that's not all his coming. That's the consequence for unbelief. There's a tremendous consequence for faith. We read of this, his angels will gather the elect from the four corners of the world. Luther called this day the Christian's last best day. The Christian's last best day. Here was God accomplishing what he had set out to do in the Garden of Eden, create a people for his fellowship, for his glory, gathering those people in from every nation. You know, we have a situation now with our wonderful Congolese friends worshiping at the other end of the building on Sunday morning, and we pass them in the hall, and And it really causes me a bit of consternation because I want to embrace them. I want to talk to them. And I can't speak Swahili. God hasn't granted me that gift. I can read Greek, but I can't speak Swahili. And I want to say, you are my brother. You are my sister. We are together as worshipers in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. And one day we're going to raise up songs that that Savior that are glorious, that will harmonize, and all our languages will blend in one as we tell this great God and King how delighted we are to be welcomed by him. 
Romans 6, 5 says we will be united in a resurrection like his. I haven't even spoken about the resurrection body that we will receive. That's another whole subject that belongs to that day. The question is, as I close today, how do we live in light of this great event that we can hardly conceive of or visualize? How do we live in the light of it? And again, it's all right to be realistic and say, you know, I, I, Pastor, I just can't get it in my mind that this is really going to happen. In a world where my business tomorrow, well, I don't know what your business is tomorrow, going to work, working out an audit report, filling out your income tax, shopping for dinner, get your car repaired, mundane stuff, right? Black and white, down-to-earth stuff, and you say, Christ appearing on the skies doesn't fit into that picture. Well, good. It's a picture all by itself, isn't it? It's something completely new, something completely great, so full-orbed and so grand in God's conception that we can hardly imagine it, let alone hold it steady in our minds. But I love the fact that it says in a number of places, when that comes, when we see all that, Christ will be all in all. He'll be the all-consuming reality. Everything we've ever done before, practical or otherwise, will be swept away by the meeting of our human eyes with that wonderful, amazing sight. A Bible commentator of a hundred years ago, Robert Candlish, said this. Let me quote him. I always know, he said, my exact position in the world when behind me I can fix my view upon Christ dying for me and ahead of me I can glimpse Christ coming for me. He said, I can always find true north and know where I'm headed by where my Savior is and then I can face any struggle that lies before me. Let me close with the words of Samuel Rutherford. He was a Puritan. He wrote in somewhat different style English than we speak today. But he was a man who yearned, yearned for this appearing of Jesus Christ. Here's what Samuel Rutherford said. Oh, that Christ might take longer strides. May he fold the heavens together like an old cloak and shovel time and days out of his way making ready the Lamb's bride, that's the church, to meet her husband. Oh, heavens, he said, move faster. Oh, time, run, run, run. Hasten to that marriage day, for my love for Jesus is tormented by these long delays. Might we have just a little bit of that man's yearning for Christ? And let us learn to pray sincerely and truly, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we admit our 21st century minds and eyes and thoughts and shopping lists and agendas are not tuned to this event. But break in upon us, Lord, with reminders day to day, call us out of the mundane and the gray scenes. Call us at least from time to time to see in the full technicolor of your glory 
the amazing thing you're going to present us with. How we thank you for such a Savior. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.